Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey, would you guys welcome to the stage our Thailand team going out on their missions trip this week? I think it's a great team. I think God's going to use them in some great ways. But what do I know? I got two kids on this trip, so I'm a big believer. Uh, Someone asked me the question basically in different words, but I could synopsize it this way. They asked me the question, is this just a gospel tourism trip? In other words, are we as a church praying all these prayers, raising all this money, supporting these young people so that they can just kind of go see a third world country, not do hardly anything, and maybe just kind of be a Christian presence for uh, 10 days? And my answer to that is absolutely not. I've watched these young people for the last few months reading books, getting together, preparing and practicing so that they can share the gospel of Jesus Christ in Thailand. And the mission director who runs the ministry there, I know him personally. There's no way he's going to settle for anything less than hitting the streets and sharing with your words the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who have not yet heard it. So we are blessed to be able to support this team as they bring the gospel to a little part and pocket uh, of our world. So we're gonna pray for them together this morning. Uh, The Bible actually doesn't say that we're supposed to, when we pray for people, stretch out our hands, you know, and uh, all of that, but it also doesn't say that you're not allowed to do that. So if you want to do that right now as I'm praying for this group and you just want to extend your hand towards them and ask for God's blessing to be upon them, they're going to leave on Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, and be gone until the following, following Friday. So let's just ask for God's grace to be upon all of them. Lord, we lift up this team to you. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've already done in their hearts over this last year, the moment that each one of them individually said yes to you and your call to go to Thailand. The books that they've read, the conversations that they've had, the money that they've spent, the prayers that they have prayed, Lord, we're thankful for all of it up to this point. I believe, Lord, that you're working in the lives of each one of these person, each one of these people on this platform today. Lord, we pray that you'd stand with them on this journey. Lord, that you'd be with all the practical affairs, that you take care of travel and uh, the visas and passports, and Lord, that you'd watch over every vehicle that they're in and plane that they're on. Lord, we also pray that you would open up doors while they are there in country. Human hearts, Lord, prepared by your spirit, readied by you, not the persuasiveness of their presentation, not the intellect that they bring, but just the simplicity of the gospel being sown into ripe human hearts. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless them. We pray for the three teams that are being formed out of this larger 30-plus people team. And we ask, Lord, that as they break up throughout the country in those three teams, that you would use them mightily and that when they're joined back together, they would be able to rejoice at what you've done. 
And also, Lord, we pray for them that they would have a really fun time. Lord, that as they hang out together, as they serve you together, that you'd give them a vision for the life that you've called them to. So bless them, Lord, set your hand upon them and help us to join together as we stay behind in praying for them in the days to come. We thank you, Lord, for each one of their lives. Use them, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen, amen. amen. Thanks, you guys. You guys are going that way this time? Look at that, they went that way that time. Oh, you broke it up, look at that. It's like you've done this before. What a blessing. Well, hey, uh, last week, Pastor Matt finished up our little four-week study that we did uh, looking at the ministry of Christ. We were looking at Luke chapter four and five together. And uh, what a great word he brought last week, inviting us into the mission of Jesus. I love that illustration he used at the launch of his sermon about how when his dad invited him to come to work with your dad day when he was eight years old, and that that's what our Heavenly Father does for us. He says, I want to bring you into the mission, and I'm going to use your life. And so I love doing that. Uh, today, we're going to restart our series in the Psalms. If you want to turn to Psalm 11, that will be our psalm for the day. Uh, last summer, we started a new tradition as a church of taking a handful of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, and sequentially going through the Psalms. So we went through Psalm 1 through 10 last year, and today we pick it up in Psalm 11. So this series in the Psalms will be done in like, I don't know, 2043 or something like that. So stay tuned because there's 150 of these Psalms, and we're only in Psalm 11 uh, today. What I want to do is I want to read the whole psalm. It's a very appropriate psalm for our lives today. I want to pray and then uh, jump into it. So I'll read. You guys can just follow along. There's a little superscription at the beginning of this song. It says, to the choir master of David. Verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain?" For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord, verse 4, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for this uh, song or this prayer that David wrote down for us under the inspiration of your spirit, a song that communicates deep resolve and trust in you despite the circumstances of life. And Lord, we pray that the resolve that David had would be the resolve that we have. And so Lord, teach us from this prayer so that our hearts, our souls, our psyches, our spirits could be affected by who you are 
and that everything that, is a, that we're about would be altered because we've seen God. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We ask that you do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this teaching today by thinking actually about a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews. Uh, I taught the book of Hebrews a few years ago. Some of you were here for that. But it is written to, uh, as it sounds, uh, a group of people from a Jewish background who had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament uh, scriptures had predicted. Uh, But their belief in Jesus, because they had grown up in Judaism, it it really cost them. Uh, They found themselves, in a sense, pushed to the margins of their Jewish heritage and society because of their belief in Jesus. And as they looked around for a new humanity or group to connect to, uh, they couldn't find one. Definitely not in the Greco-Roman world that surrounded them with morals that were not cohesive with the way that they were trying to live their lives. Uh, In a sense, these Hebrew Christians found themselves in a position of homelessness. Who do we connect with? Who do we engage with? Uh, This is the reason, this backdrop is the reason why Hebrews is the book of the Bible that houses that verse that lots of pastors like to quote to try to get people to be constant in their engagement in their local church. Let us not forsake the assembling of the saints together. The the reason why Hebrews is the book of the Bible that says that is because these were a group of people who were on the margins of their society. They needed people to connect with. They needed the new humanity of the church that Jesus produced. But they didn't only need church engagement. They needed endurance. Uh, The writer says this in Hebrews 10, 36 and 39. You have need of endurance, he says. God's righteous one must live by faith. But if he shrinks back from faith, God is not pleased. But we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith. As I start this teaching today, I want to ask the question of you, do you want to be one of those people who continues on in faith, you're confident in God, you're trusting in God? Hebrews goes on to say, faith is the conviction about things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Do you want to be that kind of person or a person of fear, a person who the Hebrews writer describes as shrinking back? It's this endurance This unshrinking and immovable confidence that I think our psalm talks about and addresses today. It's a confidence that I believe we desperately need in our modern time. Rather than be anxious about life, rather than be anxious about the future, we have to have a faith and a confidence in what God is doing. And that's precisely what David had concluded in this song of prayer. He was sure that God was working and convinced that God's goodness was coming. In fact, that's how he starts his whole prayer at the beginning there in verse one. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. I I can trust in the Lord. I can lean upon the Lord. I am confident because of the Lord. Uh, But as is always the case, 
there were reasons in David's life and experience not to have that brand or level of confidence. Uh, you might not have picked up on this as we just read through the psalm the first time, but this psalm is basically a three-way conversation. Uh, many of the psalms are just a psalmist, a person, an individual, or a congregation praying to God, a two-way conversation. But this is a three-way conversation. David is the one who says at the very beginning, in the Lord I will take refuge, and then he quotes another person who is speaking to his soul about his condition. He says, I can't believe that you are saying to my soul, and then he goes on to list these various things that someone else had said to him about his life. This person had told him in verse one that he should protect himself from some calamity he was going through, we don't know what it was, by fleeing like a bird to his mountain. Someone saying to David, you, you need to run away, you need to protect yourself, you need to deal with this by fleeing. His enemy, David's enemy, maybe Saul, his father-in-law, maybe someone else, his son Absalom, they had their finger on the trigger. The bow was bent, this person says in verse two. The arrow is loaded onto the string and the assassin is ready to shoot at David from the shadows of darkness. And not only was David under threat, but notice what this person says about society at large in David's life in verse three. He says, the very foundations have been destroyed. The very foundations of David's society were being ruined. Now, like I said, we don't know the specific background to this psalm, but David certainly felt the shakeup of his world multiple times. His father-in-law Saul and later his son Absalom had both overturned righteousness in Israel and cultivated a chaotic and lawless environment. Whoever spoke to David saw all of these events and came to a frightening conclusion. They scrolled through their newsfeed. They'd seen the signs. The wicked, they said in verse two, were on the rise. They were aiming at everyone who is upright in heart. And the foundations of society itself were crumbling. So they concluded at the end of verse three, what can the righteous do. It's all hopeless. It's all loss. There is nothing we can do. We are in an impossible situation. But for as logical and as reasonable as this person sounded with their long list of despairing news that they rattled off to David, they were wrong in their conclusion, and David knew it. Like I said, he couldn't believe that they were trying to manipulate his soul to feel that all was hopeless. That's why he started the whole psalm with a note of resolve. In the Lord do I take refuge. Now, I like this about David. It's the same attitude, by the way, that pushed David to run out to slay Goliath when everyone else peed their pants because of Goliath. <laughs> I mean, for 40 days, Goliath came out to the armies of Israel and challenged them to representative warfare. Not, not even once did any of those warriors think about God. But David, young David, arrives on the 40th day to, to, to deliver some supplies to his three 
oldest brothers at the battlefront. And he hears this Philistine mocking the armies of God. And he says, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's the first time in the entire David versus Goliath passage that anyone says God's name. Everyone else was able to recount, Goliath is this tall. Goliath is this wide. Goliath's armor looks just like this, but they weren't talking about God. But that's David. For all his faults, he was a God-hearted man who was willing to put God into the complex equations of life. Sure, without God, the situation was entirely as his counselor in this psalm said. But with God, the situation was entirely different. So David decided to take courage by finding his refuge in the Lord. Now, I believe that this immovable confidence that David had and that I'm talking about today, I think it's important for us in our modern time. We, we do, of course, live in a time where the very foundations of society are under siege. If I was the kind of preacher who liked to war against culture and berate culture over and over again, uh, this passage would be a dream come true passage for me. I could take that line that the foundations are destroyed and I could just berate everything because there's so much truth in it. We're told that we are highly unlikely cosmic accidents who somehow have desires and impulses. It only makes sense if we think that way collectively that we would rewrite every major foundation that has led to healthy and flourishing societies in years past. We rewrite and rewrite again the very foundations of a good and healthy society. But but what I want to show you is that the foundational chaos that David felt in Israel in his day it actually doesn't find its best corollary in the foundational chaos of our society at large, but when there is foundational chaos inside the church. Why is that? Well, Israel, David's people, they were God's people. And in our modern era, the church, we are God's people. And when the church drifts from the fear of God, when the church drifts from doctrinal soundness, when the church drifts from gospel clarity, when the church drifts from holiness, from lives filled with good works, the very foundations of the society of the church are being corrupted or destroyed. I was reading recently in in just a book about discipleship, a a study uh, about a study that the Barna Group had done. Uh, basically asking uh, self-identified Christians uh, lots of doctrinal questions. What do you guys believe? And uh, one question uh, was basically phrased something like, do you believe that Jesus is the greatest created being ever? And, uh, you know, a lot of Christians, it seems, globbed onto the word greatest. I mean, my church, our vision is Jesus famous. He is the greatest, but they forgot about the word created. Jesus is not created. (laughs) He is God the Son who has always been. And a vast majority of Christians answered, yes, Jesus Jesus is the greatest created being (laughs) that has ever existed. 
Those are foundational elements that lead to decay in the body of Christ. This is the true tragedy of our time. When the world acts like the world, it's expected. But when the church acts like the world, when societal chaos and moral decay happen in the church, it's an atrocity. This is why we need to recover an immovable confidence in God. When David decided to take refuge in the Lord, he was modeling for us what we need to do as well. When we hear that same despondent conclusion from some accuser, even the accuser in our own hearts and minds, asking the question, what can the righteous do? We need to respond and say, with God, anything. With God, we can overcome. With God, we are able. Uh, I was talking to a couple of my girls recently um, who they're both going to Thailand, but this summer they had, as high school students, the opportunity to serve at uh, um, our middle school summer camp. And uh, there were a couple of other churches that were there, and so they, they as servants, they kind of got there early, and they got things set up, and were preparing for these middle school students to arrive, and then to kind of serve them all week long. And once they got uh, the camp prepared, they decided, well, we need to kind of greet these middle schoolers uh, when they arrive. We need to do something to greet them, not remembering that the best way to greet a middle schooler is to just leave them alone and pretend like they're not there. Just let them kind of just comfortably warm up to the environment. So what they decided to do is they decided to form a human tunnel where they would kind of like clap hands so that when the buses rolled up and the kids came off, they'd have to go through this human tunnel. And because the theme of the camp was fight the good fight, they decided to chant that over and over again. Fight the good fight, fight the good fight, fight the good fight. Well, only later did they discover that some of those middle school kids, they confided in their leaders. That was kind of a scary moment for us because we didn't know what they were saying. We thought they were saying, sacrifice, sacrifice, <laughs> sacrifice. <laughs> I heard that story and I thought, I think that's how we sometimes feel about little pep talks like Pastor Nate is giving us from this psalm. We, we know that we want to fight the good fight of faith. We know we want to be calm and resolved in the, in the face of the storm. Uh, we, we know that we want to have our anxieties pushed down by the reality of who God is. We know that, but sometimes it feels like we're like lambs being led to the slaughter. And it's painful. It, it's hard. So what I want to spend the rest of our time doing is looking at the second half of the psalm. I've been talking about the first three verses. I want to think about verse 4 through 7. How did David come to a place of such great resolve? Okay? The first thing that David did is he recognized that God, number one, is the ultimate king. God is the ultimate king. There was all this chaos, of course, unfolding all around David, but somehow he was able to see past all of that into, he says in verse 4, God's holy temple. And now what David saw in God's holy temple was the Lord seated on his throne. He saw the throne of God. 
And from God's throne, David says that God could see everything. You know, he wasn't surprised by anything. There wasn't anything happening on earth that he did not witness with his own eyes. He saw everything. This is the omniscience of God. And as he saw everything, he tested everything. Every work of the children of man, God tested from his throne. Now, in the Bible, God's throne is a symbol of his universal rule and authority, his sovereignty. And as David considered his predicament, what he was going through, he was relieved from his distress by the knowledge that God has a throne, authority, power, sovereignty, way beyond the realm of man. Uh, There's another Old Testament book, the book of Daniel, uh, that I think has a beautiful passage that describes this throne room or authority of God. Uh, In that book, there's a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. He doesn't believe in God, at least not yet, at the portion of the story we're going to think about. And he had a dream or a vision. In his dream, he saw a large statue. It had a head of gold. It had a chest of silver. It had thighs of bronze. It had legs of iron. And it had feet of iron mixed with clay. What happened next in his dream was a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it struck the statue on its clay and iron feet, and the whole statue was destroyed, broken in pieces. Nebuchadnezzar felt that this dream or this vision was divine in origin, but he didn't know what it meant, and that's when the prophet Daniel entered onto the scene. Daniel declared that the various metals represented various world powers and kingdoms, but the stone represented God's kingdom. And Daniel said it this way. He said, and in the days of those kings, the, the, the final kingdom that would exist, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It, God's kingdom, shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand. God's kingdom shall stand forever. Now, just a few weeks ago, we were thinking about how Jesus did miracles all throughout the region of Capernaum on that beautiful day, cast out the demon of the man in the synagogue, healed Peter's mother-in-law, then stood at the door of Peter's home and healed everyone after dark who came to him with sicknesses or with demon possession. He dealt with everything, but it was the next day, the text told us, that Jesus went alone into a solitary place in prayer, and when they came to find him, he announced to them, this is why I've come forth. I've come forth to go proclaim the kingdom of God in the surrounding towns. In other words, Jesus' kingdom, the one that he brought, is the kingdom that will ultimately reign, last, rule forever and ever, just like Daniel's prediction or prophecy foretold. Now, this knowledge 
This knowledge that God is in control, that his kingdom will never end, that he's seated on his throne and that he's moving the universe to his desired and glorious outcome, it has always been and should be a great source of relief to God's people. But here's what I wanna say to you today. I think that this doctrine of God's sovereignty, that God is on the throne, it's meant for more than a therapeutic effect on our psyches, and it's meant to make us into a non-anxious presence in an angry and divided world. In other words, it's not meant to only impact our souls, it's meant to impact our actions. It's meant to impact our words. It's meant to impact the way that we carry ourselves in this world, believing that God is not off the throne, but that he's on the throne, that he's sovereign, that he's moving here on earth. Without an understanding of this, we inevitably become frightened and jostled. But when it becomes a settled fact that God is enthroned, we become calm and confident in him and his work on earth. Look at what God said to the prophet Isaiah. He said, Isaiah, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. There's so many times where we have those weak hands. So many times we have those knocking knees. So many times we have those anxious hearts. And we're to remember that God is working, that God is moving things to his great and final conclusion where his kingdom will never end. I think this knowledge that God is enthroned, I think it's what we need in our modern time. You know, for many years now, the church, especially in the West, has adopted a strategy of trying to be relevant to the world as a way to change the world or to reach the world. Uh, But my my conviction is that that's not going to work for the emerging generations. The chasm between Christianity and culturally accepted norms is too big to bridge with something as minor as relevancy. Instead, we have to recognize that God is on the throne. We have to maintain a quiet, confidence in him, and we have to live as if he is the king of our lives, that we are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. And part of that means an obedience to the Lord, including in in being obedient to share the gospel. This resilient life, I believe, is what's needed as we face the pressures of our day. Now, I know a lot of you, you become overwhelmed by what you perceive as bad news in our modern time. Uh, Some friends and I, we were talking recently because one of us in our group had discovered on Instagram a beautiful photo of 5,000 people getting baptized down in Southern California. I think it was kind of a response to that Jesus revolution movie, and they were being baptized in the same place that the movie had baptisms or that Calvary chapels had baptisms many years ago. And at first, the way we felt about this image was, you know, it's such a shame that we don't get to hear this good news because we're constantly confronted with so much bad news. But as we continue to consider it, one of the thoughts that came out was, 
we wonder how many of those 5,000 people, it was because of the bad news of our time. It was because of the chaos of our time. It was because they were sold promises that could never satisfy, that could never come to pass, that their hearts were opened to looking for something more. And perhaps their hearts became open to the gospel through a disillusionment with what is. I'm just trying to say we don't always know what God is doing, but he is sovereign, he is on his throne, and David fixed his eyes upon God. Okay, number two, David recognized, secondly, that God is the ultimate judge. Not just the ultimate king, but the ultimate judge. Uh, Not only did God see everything about the children of men, but he also tested the righteous, he says in verse four and five, well, hating the wicked and the one who loves violence. And in other words, because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is good, he's predisposed against wickedness and violence. It's, it's hurting people, it's harming people, and God doesn't like that. He, in his pure and untainted way, hates wickedness. Now, sometimes we're with God in this, and we really hate wickedness in an untainted and pure way. And then there's other times we're not really with God in this, and we hate wickedness in an impure and tainted way, if we're being honest about ourselves. But David saw this. He thought all of this about God. God, you're pure, you're holy, you're righteous. And so David gave God a pretty intense prayer. He says, God, what I want you to do, here's, here's my request. I've kind of been brewing this one up. Verse six, I want you to rain coals on the wicked. You know, he's like, this is my request. It's what I want you to do. And then to kind of flesh it out a little bit more, he's like, God, I'll be a little bit more specific just in case that's too vague or general. You know, I, want, I don't want to be the person who doesn't get what they want because they ask not. So I want to really ask specifically. So three things. The coals, I want them to be in the form of fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. That's what I want, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Now, Now, I realize that in a room this size, there's many people in this room. For those of us who are Christians, we probably have different responses to a prayer like that or a phrase like that in the Bible. Uh, One response is to be really excited about them. <laughs> like, yes, I can pray this way. I, you know, I want to ask God to do this. Like, I'm about that. Uh, another response is to be really uncomfortable with these what we call imprecatory prayers or passages in the Bible like this and almost kind of act like they're not in there. You know, like, all right, I'm not going to send this verse to my friends, but there's got to be something good in Philippians I can send to them, you know, thing. <laughs> And then others of us, maybe we take an approach where we say, look, the Bible should never be apologized for. And so I just accept it. And there's no nuance or thought pertaining to this passage. So because of that, I want to offer you some tools to aid you in understanding verses like these. Uh, The three tools I'll give to you is, number one, you need to determine what genre of the Bible you're studying when you come across a verse like this. The Bible is not just one book. It's been unified. It's been known and recognized. This is all of the Spirit, all 66 of these books. But they were written over 2,000 years by 40 different authors. 
So what that means is that when you open up your Bible, it's like you're going up to a bookcase. And you're pulling one of those books off of the bookcase. And you got to know which genre you're pulling off of that bookcase. If you, if you pull the book of Romans off of that Bible bookcase, you got to know you're reading the word of the apostles. You're reading one of the final statements on doctrine. You're reading the pinnacle of Christian thought and teaching and theology. When you go and pull off the Psalms out of God's bookcase, out of the Bible bookcase, you're reading the ancient prayers, prayer journal of God's people, the people of Israel. In other words, these are emotional. These are feelings. This is almost in a sense like a, a spewing out of what's happening within the human heart. This is a prayer, a wishful human longing that God would judge. So you should expect to see emotion and feeling in a book like this. Second, not only should you determine the genre that you're studying, but you should determine the context of the passage. In other words, there might be more information that is surrounding this passage. It will help you understand the passage a little bit better. So here with this prayer, like I said earlier, we don't totally know the situation that David was in, but we do know of a couple of times in his life where Israelite culture, society, the foundations there were overturned and were being destroyed. The first time it happened was because of his son-in-law or his uh, father-in-law, Saul. And what you can ask yourself is, did David live out his prayer in Saul's life or later in Absalom's life or in anyone else in Israel's life? And the answer would be no. In fact, there's that episode where David is running for his life out in the wilderness of En Gedi, and he and his men hide in a cave, and Saul is pursuing him to kill him, and Saul randomly chooses of all the caves in En Gedi, David's cave, to rest in or to relieve himself in, and because David's men are in the recesses of the cave with David, Saul doesn't know that they're in there, and David's men begin to say to Saul, this is the day that God promised that you would be able to slay, avenge yourself against your oppressor. And David crept out to Saul, cut off the corner of his robe, and his heart was convicted. Who am I that I would touch the Lord's anointed? He followed Saul out of the cave, holding up that corner of the robe, making himself vulnerable as a way of saying, I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. So there's a context. You've done this before. You've felt things and said things to God that you're not going to live out, that you're not going to act out upon. And that was David. There's a context. But the third thing that you should do beyond just determining genre and context is determine if there is further revelation found in the Bible. The Bible is an unfolding revelation of God's plan and purpose. When it comes to... God's judgment and his people's attitudes towards the lost, there's a lot of further revelation. At the cross, we learn that Jesus took the fire and the sulfur and the east wind of God's wrath into his body on the cross so that any person who would repent and trust him would be accepted by God. 
And after the cross, after the resurrection, we learn that God's people, the church, worked crazy hard so that humanity, who was still sitting under the crosshairs of God's judgment, could be saved through faith and belief in the gospel. The church wanted everyone to hear that message so they could be saved from eventual judgment. That's the further revelation that I think you could get from this passage. So again, determine genre, determine context, determine further revelation. Okay, all that to say, in this part of the psalm, David comforted himself, not just with the knowledge that God is on the throne, but that God is the ultimate judge. He is the king, he does have a plan, but he'll also one day judge everyone. There won't be evil that people get away with. It will be dealt with. Uh, Every human soul will be held accountable to the divine revelation they received from what they saw in creation to the explicit gospel. God will open the books and only those who are listed in the Lamb's book of life covered by the blood of Jesus, as we sang earlier, will enter into glory. And all those who rejected God and did not want to surrender him the Bible teaches, will be judged. And David is comforting himself with this. All of this evil that this person is recounting to him, God sees it. God will, in his own way and time, deal with it. Back in 2010, uh, I was, uh, at that time of my life, I don't really watch it anymore, but I was was a basketball fan back in that era. Uh, My Dad had raised me because he was from the Southern California area. He'd raised me to root for all the LA teams. So I was rooting for the Los Angeles Lakers. I I loved Kobe Bryant and watching his career develop in part because we were the same age. And uh, that year, the Lakers made it all the way to the championship round. And the championship round went all the way to the last and seventh game against the Boston Celtics. And the commissioner of the NBA did not check the Calvary Monterey Church schedule when he scheduled that seventh game. It was on a Wednesday night. We had a Wednesday night church service. And so I had to try to figure out, what am I, what am I going to do? And uh, there was another pastor on staff at the time, Pastor Matt Gersandi, who pastors Refuge Church in Salinas now. He was also a Lakers fan. And so what we decided to do was to, to DVR, record the game at his home, and uh, go over there after church. And uh, we just told ourselves, we're not going to talk to anybody about the game, you know, who's there at church. Our assumption was that um, anybody who cared about the game would not be at the house of the Lord that evening. <laughs> And uh, we were right. So, so the church service ended. We went over to his house, and we're, we're watching the game. It's late at night. We're watching the game, fast-forwarding through the commercials. It gets into the third of four quarters, and the Lakers are losing big time. And it just looks like there's no way. They're not going to come back. They're not going to win this. And then a commercial comes on, and he does what he's been doing all game, and he clicks to fast-forward the commercial, but his, his finger slipped. And it jumped all the way to the very end of the recording. And in a millisecond, all we saw was purple and gold confetti falling down from the rafters and the Lakers dancing around with the trophy on the stage. We couldn't pretend like we hadn't seen that. (laughs) We knew what was going to happen, but because it was such a huge comeback, we were curious, how did that happen? So we went back 
to the point that we left off and we watched the game. And what I gotta tell you is, it was a totally different experience the second time through. Before I knew the outcome, I was on the edge of my seat. I was anxious. It was kind of stressful. Every bad play, oh, every good play, yeah. But once I knew the outcome, it was just like, every good play, all right. Every bad play, all right. I know where this is going. The Lakers are going to win. I use this as a humorous illustration. If we know that God is the judge of all and that his kingdom is everlasting, shouldn't that create an immovable confidence inside of us? Shouldn't it affect the way that we are? He's on the throne. He is the judge. Okay, let me end with one last little statement, though. David recognized, lastly, that God is not just the ultimate king and judge, but God is the ultimate goal. This comes from verse 7. It says, David knew, as much as God sees all the deeds and judges all flesh, he knew at the end of this psalm, the upright shall behold God's face. Now, we don't know exactly what David meant when he said the upright will see or behold God's face. Uh, Maybe he meant that the upright one day after death and in the future, they will see God in the fullness of his glory. That's certainly biblically true. Uh, Maybe David meant that a personal devotional vision of God, you know, just talking to God, praying to God, enjoying God, would be enough to see him through his trials. Like, I'm going to personally see God, and I'll be able to make it through. Or maybe he was that confident that God would rescue him in some tangible way here on earth from his oppressors. And so he's saying, I'm going to see God work in my life in some really cool ways. We don't really know exactly what David meant, but what we do know on this side of the cross is that if you've believed in Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ completely for your rescue, salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, if you've repented of your sin and leaned upon him completely, then the Bible says that the righteousness of Jesus is deposited into your account that God sees you just as he sees his only begotten son. And what that means is that you have complete and total access to the Father. We're told in Hebrews to come boldly to his throne of grace, not because of our works or what we've done, but because of Jesus. We get to, in a sense, see God. And that was David's conclusion. God, at the end of the day, is the ultimate goal. That's what David wanted more than anything. He knew that all the threats and all the worries and all the foundation-shaking activity in his world were nothing in comparison to knowing God. In fact, if David had been offered peace and security and the foundations of his society coming back together without God, he would have declined. He wanted God that badly. And in fact, I think we intuitively understand this. We intuitively know know this. It's part of the reason why we like the Psalms, many of us, so much. They don't come out of the good times. They don't come out of times of only peace, only prosperity, only wins. They come out of the wilderness. They come out of trials. 
They come out of grief. They come out of loss. They come out of mourning. They, they come out of a longing in the human soul. And David, he's going through all that stuff. He's like, yeah, I hear you, accuser. You're saying all this stuff is happening. It's true. But I'm going to find God in the midst of all that. And I believe that God is calling his people in the same way right now. The foundations are shaken. The weapons are loaded. The temptation to flee like a bird to our mountain, maybe one in Idaho, it looms over all of us. And the feeling that there is nothing that the righteous can do, it looms. But through it all, God is beckoning. God is inviting. Look at what God said in Jeremiah's day. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, God is always inviting his people back to the ancient old paths. Walk with me, enjoy me, set your eyes upon me, experience me, and find rest for your souls. So I pray that we'd be a people every day who do, do what David did in this psalm. I'm making a decision. In the Lord, I will take refuge. Because all day long, there will be voices from within and without who tell us, panic! And we must say, no, in the Lord, I take my refuge. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.